Good morning, and please remain standing and reach for your Bibles, if you would, as we prepare to read from the Word of God. And open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 4 and 5. Again, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, please turn to page 1166. Pastor Bruce is preaching from this passage from the sermon series this morning, the book of Philippians. So follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 4, again, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Bow your heads and pray with me, please, this morning. Our Heavenly Father, We praise you and worship you as the only true God. How thankful we are for you. How grateful to have your son who is seated at your right hand at this very moment. Our Savior who makes it possible for us to be made right with you. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We rejoice in you and ask that you teach us this morning how to let your gentleness be shown to others. Help us to lift your name higher to those that are around us. Father, we also ask, as we think of those in our service and perhaps those that are watching our service online, that are in need, maybe they're dealing with sickness, personal struggles, we bring all those needs to you, for we know that you know what those needs are. We ask for healing, strength, and guidance. And what you can only do, Father. Speak to us this morning through the preaching of your word. Be with Pastor Bruce as he speaks. We ask all these names, all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1776, the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia on the date here, July 4th a date now celebrated as the birth of American independence. In fact, most of us know that the Declaration of Independence now guarantees the right in that famous line in the preamble, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But according to Brent Strong, who teaches religion and theology at Emory University, our contemporary understanding of the pursuit of happiness is a In his own words, a thinner, less meaningful shadow of what the Declaration's authors intended. And perhaps that is why, in 2016, a magazine article titled American Rage begins with this quote in bold capital letters. Half of all Americans are angrier today than they were a year ago. The article continues from their views on the state of the American dream, which is dead, and America's role in the world, which is not what it used to be, to how their life is working out for them, which is not what they had expected, more people than ever are viewing life through a veil of disappointment. Historian Daniel Bornstein suggests that Americans suffer so much disappointment because of self-centered, unrealistic expectations. Raymond Navaco, a psychology professor at the University of California in Irvine, says, Americans are living in a big anger incubator now. 
According to psychiatrist Joshua Morgenstein, the country is now dealing with three disasters superimposed on top of one another. You have the pandemic, the economic fallout, and civil unrest. And certainly, he says, one way of responding to all of that is a common way of responding is anger. The problem is anger looks for someone to blame. Anger is quick to lash out. And so as a result, we are now seeing an an alarming increase in acts of anger across our country. For example, in fact, this just took place last month. An Ohio woman is facing two misdemeanor assault charges for allegedly attacking McDonald's employees because they wouldn't mix flavors of a slushy drink together for her. And so when the police arrived, they observed her attempting to strike workers behind the counter. And while investigating the incident, police determined that the woman became irate after being told by staff that it wasn't possible to mix flavors of a slushy drink together. And so, here we are. We're living in the middle of a disappointing world, a very disagreeable world, because of sin and selfishness. And yet, it's into this world that God has placed His church to be demonstrations of His grace. You see, as recipients, and this is the big idea of today's text, it's really the big idea, it's the main theme of what Paul is communicating to us through these two simple, short verses, and yet powerful verses. And here it is. As recipients of God's grace, we are called to demonstrate God's grace in the world in which we live. A world that is disappointing on many different levels and a world that is certainly we have seen an uptick in disagreeableness or even unreasonableness. We often think of the word grace when we think of how God treats us. And, And there's certainly truth to that. God has treated us with grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel. We were undeserving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's by grace that we are provided a way of salvation. It's by grace that we have received from Jesus Christ, and now through our faith in Him, that we can now be reconciled back into a relationship, a right standing with the Holy Father. That's grace on behalf of God the Father to us. And it's offered to all the world. And we are the recipients of that. And so that's one way to think of grace. But grace is not only something we receive from God, but it's something we now show to others in gracious acts and in a gracious attitude. Grace is refreshing, is it not? Oh, when... It is super refreshing. It's, it's, like, it's refreshing as a spray from a waterfall on a hot day or, or this afternoon a cool drink of water to parched lips. And in the New Testament, grace focuses on favor that is bestowed on someone undeserving. Grace. Now, most Christians, we tend to talk about grace. We will even sing about grace, and appropriately so. But how many of us actually live out grace? The truth is, grace is difficult, if not impossible. Why? Because, well, life is difficult, is it not? Life is disappointing in this world at times. And people, well, oh gosh, people. People can be disagreeable and at times unreasonable and, and 
a lot of times just downright impossible. That's people for you. That's humanity. And yet, because we are the recipients of God's grace, we are now called to demonstrate God's grace in this disappointing and disagreeable world in which we live. This is what Paul is telling us. In fact, he's actually commanding this to us. Notice it again in these two short verses where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so, demonstrations of grace, that's what we're called to. So how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, two simple points that come right out of these two verses here. Number one is resolve to rejoice in a disappointing world. Paul, once again, finds it necessary to issue this command to Christ followers, to believers in Jesus, to rejoice. Why did George Mueller say the first and great primary business every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord? Because if truth be told, we do not always wake up in the morning ready to rejoice. Now, of course, rejoicing isn't easy, but Paul knows that. And so he obviously thought that we needed to hear this command once again. In fact, We've already heard it before. You go to the very first verse in chapter 3 of Philippians. There, chapter 3, verse 1. And what does Paul tell us? He starts out that whole chapter with rejoice in the Lord. And now he's telling us the same thing again. In fact, Paul repeats the command twice here in chapter 4, verse 4. He even adds the word always when he writes in verse 4. For rejoice in the Lord always, always. And again, I will say rejoice. And so you can't help but notice that there are not any loopholes in this command. There's no way to wiggle out of it here. And and after all, if you're like me, that's what we try to do, right? We try to find loopholes in everything, especially if we don't like it. I mean, my son Jack, is he is the master of finding loopholes with his mother and I. Aren't you, Jack? Growing up, when he was in middle school, if we told him this... He somehow found a loophole, like, well, you didn't cover this, this, and that. I'm like, well, listen, when your mother and I give a command, it covers everything. And Lord God, he's doing the same thing here. There's no loopholes. In fact, Karl Barth, the theologian of the 20th century, said, joy in Philippians is a defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, in other words, rejoice. Despite the circumstances, rejoice. Whatever is happening in your life, rejoice. This is a biblical command that leaves no room for not rejoicing. This means we are to to rejoice, not just sometimes, not periodically, not when we feel like it. Not when things just go our way. It's easy to rejoice then. And not when we finally get relief from some problem or suffering. But always, Paul says. Now, I admit, this is a bit troubling. Especially for some of us who don't always rejoice. Sometimes we rejoice. But mostly we're just anxious. Right? And so I hope you come back next Sunday because Paul actually talks about an anxious heart in the very next verses here. And we'll deal with that. We'll look at it next Sunday. But for now, know that anxiety is a joy killer. It's a joy stealer. It will rob you of your joy in the journey. 
The question is, how is it possible to rejoice always? Well, Paul doesn't leave us guessing to that. He actually tells us that the key to rejoicing always is when this, he says this little phrase, rejoice what? In the Lord. In the Lord. And so notice this. Because our joy is rooted in the Lord, make it your resolution now to rejoice at all times and in all circumstances. This command to rejoice, you know what? It shows the difference that Jesus can make in your life. At all times and in all circumstances with all people. The key to joy is is source. That's what Paul means here. And the source of our joy is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy comes from our relationship with the Lord, not our circumstances. We have seen this already throughout this letter of Philippians. One author put it this way. If Christ is in me and I am in Christ, that relationship is not a sometime experience. The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian, and that is always a reason for joy. Another author says that when Paul wrote this verse, he may have had in mind the song that closes the prophecy in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets named Habakkuk. That prophet was oh upset, so upset that the wickedness in Judah seemed to just escape justice that these evil people in his country were just running rampant and there was no justice nothing was happening to them and this made him mad and so god promised to punish judah these these wicked people through an even more evil empire named babylon but that only complicated his distress He couldn't understand that. And yet Habakkuk also received some good news when God said, the righteous shall live by faith. And so his prophecy closed then with a song of joy, even in the midst of those adverse circumstances of his country. Listen, or look what he writes in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and... The fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Sounds like Paul there. I will rejoice. Commentator Dennis Johnson writes on this verse here. He says, it's natural to link our happiness and hopes to juicy figs and ripe olives on trees, sweet grapes on vines, wheat in fields, sheep in folds, cattle in corrals, a robust stock portfolio, a healthy retirement account. But a moment's thought shows how fleeting all such resources are. Habakkuk knew that what lasts through the, the boom and recession, success and bankruptcy is the commitment of God to his people, and so does Paul. That's why Paul can say this, rejoice, rejoice always in the Lord. Now, perhaps you're still wondering, well, what does that actually mean? Well, here's what it does not mean, first of all. Rejoice in the Lord always doesn't mean that that we will never experience sadness or grief over loss. doesn't mean that. Listen, Paul's rejoice in the Lord always should not be confused with that old song, don't worry, be happy, 
not the same thing. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean that we will never feel sadness in life. Doesn't mean we will never suffer grief over loss. Remember Paul himself, back in chapter 2, he, he even, he writes in this chapter and he, he tells us that he felt sorrow when Epaphroditus almost died from a severe illness. He was sorrowful, real emotion. And then in chapter 3, he tells us in verse 18 that he actually wept tears over those who were enemies of the cross. In fact, what is really interesting is that the two shortest verses in the Bible, anybody know what they are? One of them is Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five, And then the other one is rejoice always in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen. Two shortest verses in the Bible, rejoice always and Jesus wept. And listen, they are not contradictory. Jesus could weep and yet have the fullness of joy even as he knew he was on the path to the cross and as he says in John 15, 11, I have told you these things, he's speaking to his disciples, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Paul, later on, he tells us in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So biblical joy, listen, it is compatible with the whole spectrum of emotions that fit the range of situations that confront us in this sin-fallen world. Timothy Keller, pastor and author, he is spot on when he writes, and I quote, rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always, but this cannot mean always feel happy since no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. So to rejoice in the Lord always, it doesn't mean that we deny our feelings of sadness and ignore our grief when we suffer loss. But here's what joy does talk about. Here's what it does mean. Rejoice in the Lord always it is primarily a matter of obedience, not a matter of feeling. Now, the reason we can say this is because this verse is a command. And commands are meant to be obeyed. So this is a matter of obedience, much more than a matter of feeling. In fact, Paul repeats this command twice in this little verse for emphasis. So again, we can't just ignore this. We can't just shrug it off. We can't make excuses for this. As D.A. Carson notes, this is a command, not just good advice. Although it is very good advice for us. Spiritually speaking, it's great advice. But it's much more than that. It's a command to obey. This is a command that we must intentionally choose to obey, especially when we are in the midst of difficult circumstances or we are dealing with difficult people. Well, and that's pretty much every week of our lives, right? Remember what Paul said back in Philippians 1.18, in this, and the this there is referring to his imprisonment in Rome, in this, while I'm in Rome, and because the gospel is advancing through this, my imprisonment in Rome, In this, I rejoice. Yes, I will. It's intentional. I will rejoice, he says. So, number three, rejoice in the Lord always. It's an attitude as well. 
It's an attitude. So it's obedience, and then it's part of an attitude of contentment and hope that then transcends our circumstances. It transcends difficult people in our lives, unreasonable people in our lives. So rejoice in the Lord always. It's the idea to resist the natural instinct that we're all prone to, to focus on the tangible pleasures in life, or even on the tangible problems in life, and instead to intentionally focus on the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though our hearts may be heavy with sorrow because of trials or suffering, beneath the surface of all that is this abiding confidence that our God is sovereign and that our lives are ultimately in His hands. And so joy is the settled conviction that God is in control of every circumstance and every event in life. And even when trials come into our lives, we can still respond with joy because we know that God has a sovereign plan, even in what he is allowing us to go through. Later on, Paul even tells us here in chapter 4 of Philippians that he had to learn to be content in every situation. In every situation for Paul, do you realize it included some pretty severe trials in his life? But to that, he writes later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. Look, listen to what he says. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed by those afflictions, he says, beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There's the hope in Jesus. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. And so this joy in the Lord, this rejoicing in the Lord always, it is not a a superficial happiness that's based on one's circumstances or on even the absence of trials in your life. Rather, it is a steadfast contentment, a steadfast hope that is as certain as our faithful God. Yeah, we are living, there's no doubt about it, I don't think anybody here would disagree with it, we are living in a disappointing world. And the reason is because we live in a sin-fallen world. Disappointments are bound to be, to expect otherwise, you're living in a fairyland. And so we are living in a disappointing world where we are surrounded by unhappy people. They may be part of your family even now. They, you may live with some of them. You may work with a whole lot of them. Maybe you live next door. But we live in a disappointing world surrounded by unhappy people because they are unbelievers in Jesus Christ. They do not know the joy of the Lord. But we, listen, we here as Christ followers, we, we become demonstrations of God's grace when we resolve to rejoice in the Lord at all times and in all circumstances. Isn't that beautiful? But as you know, we also live in a very disagreeable world. 
an unreasonable world. And so Paul writes in verse 5, look at it again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And so the second way that we demonstrate God's grace is being known for reasonableness in a disagreeable world. Seriously? Are you serious, Paul? Really? I love, as one author wrote, and he wrote this tongue-in-cheek, by the way, the meek and gentle don't inherit the earth, they get walked on. So what does Paul mean here when he writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone? Well, part of the challenge is actually trying to translate this Greek word for reasonableness. Because that word, the Greek word that Paul uses, which is translated in our English language, reasonableness, that word can actually be translated several different ways. For example, in some of your Bibles, it's translated as graciousness. Or some of your Bibles, it may be translated as gentleness or, or even forbearance. Aristotle explained reasonableness as this willingness to forgo one's own rights according to the letter of the law. Calvin takes this word reasonableness to mean that we are not to be easily angered when we are wrong or suffer inconvenience or injustice. And so you can see this word translated reasonableness, graciousness, gentleness, forbearance, all of that together, we might say the spirit of gentleness here, that was evident in the life of Jesus Christ when he was here on this earth. In fact, it, you look at his attitude toward those who mocked and scored him. Just read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. They scorned him, they mocked him, and yet he did not respond and spew out name-calling. And was it tit for tat? Paul says that this, this spirit of gentleness, this reasonableness, is actually a qualification for pastors in the church. In Titus chapter 3, verse 2, where he says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Whoa, to avoid quarreling? To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's how I'm supposed to act. That's to be part of my character. And believe me, I'm not perfect at it. That's my wife. (laughs) No, don't ask her. (laughs) But here's what's interesting. This isn't just a character trait that should be for pastors. Paul says here in Philippians that all believers in Jesus Christ should be known for what? For reasonableness, for graciousness, gentleness. So what is it then? Well, putting all this together here, we can come up with a simple description or definition, whatever you want to call it. Here's what reasonableness. Reasonableness is the Christ-like disposition. That enables a person to display a gracious and gentle spirit with everyone. That's what Paul's calling us to here. Now, a gracious and gentle spirit, listen, we know it when we see it. Or better yet, we know it when we are on the receiving end of it. A gracious and gentle spirit, it is the opposite of being contentious. 
It's the opposite of being self-seeking. It's a reasonableness here. It captures the thrust of Paul's exhortation about the way Christians should treat one another when he says back in chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, again, as you know, we live in a world where gentleness or reasonableness, it is disappearing. In fact, most fears of life, it's a virtue that has already vanished from our culture. This virtue, this characteristic, this Christ-like disposition, gentleness, reasonableness. One author, he describes our current spirit, which is anything but gentle. He writes, and I quote, Reason discourse is increasingly giving way to in-your-face soundbites. Playing hardball is the dominant metaphor for American public life. Our interchanges are confrontational, divisive, and dismissive. Balance and fairness are casualties on the evening news shows as two, three, and sometimes four people contend simultaneously for dominance. And so volume and disagreement are the new civic virtues in our culture today. People are more unreasonable today. People are more disagreeable today. Therefore, demonstrations of grace have never been more needed in our culture today. The need for gentleness, the need for reasonableness has never been greater for the church, for Christ followers. A research poll underscored the real issue with the lack of civility in our culture, according to their survey. 89% think a lack of civility is a serious problem in our country. I'm sure you would agree with that. 73% think mean-spirited political campaigns are to blame. Absolutely. 52% think brash talk radio and cable news shows are to blame. But here's the interesting. 1%, 1% think their own behavior is uncivil. I was like, what? That's the problem. That is the problem in which we live, in which we're dealing with and facing Nobody today thinks they are unreasonable. After all, it's my right to act the way I want, regardless of what you think. That's our culture today. But as Christ followers, Paul calls us to a different set, a higher standard. He says we are to be known. For reasonableness, and that is significant. In other words, people are to see in us this Christ-like disposition demonstrated in our attitude and in our actions, in our interactions with one another. We are to display gentleness or reasonableness to such an extent that it now becomes our reputation to those we interact with. And don't miss the scope of this command. Paul says it's to be toward who? Who? Everyone. That's the scope. That's how broad it is. So, listen, we are not to be reasonable or gentle, not just to people who we get along with, not just to people that we agree with, 
philosophically, politically, economically, you name it, but to people who we disagree with and even those who make our lives miserable in this world or in our homes, at the job. We need this gentle spirit. If I could go back to last Sunday's message, we need this kind of spirit when we seek to reconcile even with people in the church. We need this gracious spirit when we definitely interact with people in the world. As one pastor writes, go out of your way to show others that you are gracious, forgiving, patient, not easily offended, that you're quick to yield your rights and give preference to the other person. This quality is so unlike the world's way that we will stand out as distinct and have opportunities for witness. Again, let's be honest. This is not easy. We just don't roll out of bed in the morning and like, all right, I'm a reasonable person today. Gentleness is just flowing out of me. Again, don't ask my wife. This is just, this is difficult. This is hard. So where, where does this reasonableness, this gentleness come from? Well, in context, here, Philippians chapter 4, it comes from the preceding verse, rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. If I may be so blunt and frank... The biggest reason that we are unreasonable, the biggest reason some of you are cranky, me, the biggest reason that we get irritated so easily toward others is because our hearts are empty. But when our hearts are full, we are reasonable then. We have this gentleness about us. And it's only in rejoicing in the Lord that our hearts will be full. Now, why? Why should we strive to be known for reasonableness? Why should this be part of our reputation? Paul tells us why. Because the Lord is at hand. That's why. And so, again, don't miss this. In verse 4 and in verse 5, Paul connects all this, these two commands to the Lord. You can't help but see it. Rejoice how? In the Lord. Be reasonable. Why? Because the Lord, the Lord is at hand. And so in two short, simple verses, the Lord is part of both of them. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot accomplish this apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And His grace at work in our lives. So why should we? Well, notice this. Because the Lord is at hand, listen, Make it your reputation now to be reasonable toward all people. Now, in all fairness, i got to tell you that there is some debate over what Paul actually had in mind with this phrase, the Lord is at hand. Is Paul referring to the Lord's soon return, or is Paul referring to the Lord's close presence in our lives? Now, both are certainly true, are they not? In fact, both of them are not even mutually exclusive. 
But if Paul is speaking of the Lord's soon return, then perhaps he's saying something like this. Jesus is returning soon. So live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. James, after all, he said the same thing in James 5, 8. Be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. The Lord's coming is at hand. Paul, writing from a Roman prison, he's reminding us that this, this world in which we live, is not the end of the story. Listen, the Lord is coming soon to right every wrong that's happened in this world. And so in light of that, Paul is saying, be gentle, be reasonable to all people. Respond to disagreement with patience. Yield your rights When others are demanding, be courteous when others are discourteous. Be gracious when others treat you with disrespect. On the other hand, if Paul is referring to the Lord's close presence in our lives, then he is giving us the assurance of Christ's nearness to us even now through his indwelling spirit. One commentator, Sam Gordon, writes, In the best of times, the Lord is near. And in the worst of times, the Lord is still with us. In every changing circumstance of life, in all seasons of life, the Lord is a friend for life. He is not only near when the sun shines, he is near when the storms rage and the hurricanes blow. The weather makes no difference to him. He is near. And so psalmist affirms in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so the Lord is at hand. It motivates our reasonableness. How? By assuring us that even now as we undergo injustices, disagreements in this world, we are not alone. When you go to work and it feels like you're the only believer there, you're not alone. In your family, you may be the only believer, but you are not alone. In your neighborhood, the Lord is near to you. Now, of course, Paul, he may have actually intended to convey both of these truths. And if that's the case, listen, the Lord soon return. It should motivate us now to live differently as Christ followers. That's the implication of this. The Lord is coming. Live like it. And the Lord's close presence. Listen, that should encourage us to rely on him. To depend on his power and grace. The Lord hears the words you speak. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. And he wants you to interact with a gracious and gentle spirit to all people. Knowing that, listen, God, the Lord, he is part of every conversation. He is there with, at every response. And because the Lord is at hand, we can call upon him for help. And, oh, do we need help in this, do we not? Oh, I know I do. This does not come naturally to us. Man, everything within me wants to respond, set them straight. Of course, straight according to my perspective, right? You know, when, when something is done wrong, you just want to tell them, make it, you need to make it right. 
I get it, man. I, I'm, I, we all live in the same boat in this. This is hard. But Paul is giving us the assurance that the Lord is near. We can call upon him for help in areas of resolving conflicts, rejoicing in a disappointing world, in being reasonable in a disagreeable, unreasonable world. You know, as I was in my office at my desk studying this passage for this week, I just thought, you know, it is, it's just quite remarkable. In fact, it's rather incredible how practical and how relevant God's word is. I was like, wow. I mean, Paul writes in these two simple little verses here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Now, we know that that was written to the believers in the church at Philippi in A.D. 61 at a time when the unbelieving world needed to see the grace of God at work. And so what better way to display the beauty of God's grace, the power of God's grace, than by rejoicing in the Lord regardless of one's circumstances. In responding with gentleness toward all people regardless of how unreasonable they are. And so what Paul writes in these two verses is astounding. Even almost 2,000 years later, it is still just as practical, still just as relevant, and still as needed today. Why demonstrate God's grace? Here's the biggest reason of all. Here it is. Because we live in a world that needs to see the beauty and power of God's grace. And so Paul is commanding us, he's exhorting us to demonstrate God's grace by being a Christ follower who is joyful in a disappointing world and being reasonable in a disagreeable world. Now again, as I said at the beginning, we understand that because of sin, we live in a very disappointing and disagreeable world. And yet, folks, listen to me. It's into this world that God has placed us to be demonstrations of his grace. The question becomes, what are you demonstrating through your life? You look back this week, and if you evaluate your life, what were you demonstrating? What did you demonstrate to your spouse or to your kids? What did you demonstrate to your coworkers? What did you demonstrate to your neighbor, parents on your kids' ball teams, wherever it may be? The person at the grocery store who rung up the wrong item and charged you 20 bucks for a 98-cent item. And now you get home, you find it out, and you've got to drive all the way back to the grocery store, and you are irritated. What did you demonstrate this last week? Listen, here's the beauty of God's grace. If you demonstrated sin and selfishness, because that's still in our nature, we have a gracious God who's willing to forgive us. It's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we just go to him, Father, forgive me. I confess it. I admit it. And now tomorrow, Lord, today is a new day. 
Help me in your grace. Grace, the power to do what God calls us to do. Help me to rejoice no matter what my circumstances are. Help me to rejoice no matter who I'm interacting with. Help me to be reasonable in this unreasonable world. And we leave here with that. We're not bound by our past and how we failed. Listen, tomorrow is a new day. Today is a new day. And God calls you and I to be demonstrations of God's grace. Because this world in which we live, the few people or maybe many people that you interact with, they need to see from me and from you the beauty and the power of God's amazing grace at work in our lives. And so Paul says, make it your resolution to rejoice in the Lord at all times and in all circumstances. Make it your reputation to be reasonable toward all people. Period. And do this for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. With your heads bowed. As you think about your own joy in the Lord, your own reasonableness toward others, again, I ask you to rate yourself. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being low, 10 being high, where would you place your joy in the Lord? And where would you place your gentleness or your reasonableness toward others? And no matter where you may be on that scale, remember the Lord is at hand. So right now, ask Him to help you to rejoice in times of difficulty, and to be reasonable when dealing with difficult people. Right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ that rescued us from our sins and reconciled us to a right relationship with you. And now as recipients of your grace, help us to demonstrate that grace by being joyful and reasonable in the world that desperately needs to see you and the beauty and power of your grace at work. And so help us to rejoice in the Lord always, and may our reasonableness be known to everyone we interact with. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. Two little verses, but whoo, power-packed verses. But we have the grace of Jesus Christ to help us live it out, right? And so when you're at the cookout today, somebody takes your hamburger, respond with reasonableness, let it be known. All right, and so I do hope to see you at 1 o'clock down there. If you haven't ever been to the festival shelter, it's on the back side of Mackin Park. So you go down North Holmes here, and you're going to turn left on the road by, that's by the high school, North Clay, high, part of the high school, and go past the tennis courts. There's a big parking lot there by the tennis courts, and you'll see the big festival shelter there. So I hope to see you there. Will you stand? I want to invite you. Let's praise our Lord in song before we're dismissed. And let... Before we sing, I just want to read to you from Philippians chapter 3 as a wonderful reminder. Chapter Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but it says, But our citizenship is in heaven. You thankful for that?
As we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Listen, we may be celebrating our country's independence, but what's more important, what is supreme, what is ultimate, is our independence in Jesus Christ, our freedom in him. Our citizenship is in heaven. And now Paul calls us, live like it. Go out and rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known. Let's sing.